Welcome to the Absite Smackdown Podcast. We'll talk clinical scenarios, interesting Absite facts, and interesting general surgery knowledge. Now, let's get to it. Hi, and welcome back to the Absite Smackdown Podcast. And today, our guest is Dr. Claudine Lewis. Dr. Claudine has an interesting and extensive background. Uh, he's an MD from Howard University and currently completing his MPH in addition to a combined thoracic cardiovascular residency. Now today, uh, for those of you at home who've noticed that Jessica isn't with us, she's on vacation. So it'll be up to Claudine and I to get through this together. And I sure do think we can. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Lewis. Thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, it's no problem at all. And I appreciate you joining us today to talk about your experience with what has become an interesting and useful training style, this combined uh, thoracic cardiovascular uh, and some uh, abdominal and general surgical training up front. So I'm really interested to hear a guy like you who's uh, edited several books, and we'll put the links beneath, and you know, doing his MPH, what made a driven guy like you decide, you know what, not only is cardiothoracic for me, but this combined training program is for me? What made you decide? Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I guess I would say um, when I first got to Howard University of College of Medicine, we didn't really have um, a large cardiothoracic surgery program. But next door is a national center called the Children's National Medical Center. And I was just seeking research. So when I went um, next door, I met some uh, great individuals there, Dr. Richard Jonas, who's um, a pioneer in the field and has a named textbook, um, NTT surgery, specifically pediatric heart surgery. And also at the time, who was there, um, Dr. Nath, Dr. Nath Dillip, who I believe currently is at Washington University. Um, with their opportunity and their help, I, I did some research and I've been married to the field since. Yeah. Um, with Dr. Jonas's and Dr. Uh, Dillip's um, uh, sponsorship, I essentially was able to become a part of Massachusetts General Hospital's program um, for doing a thoracic surgery research fellowship. So I was able to do that for about two months um, after my first year um, of medical school. And um, with Dr. Dillip and Dr. Jonas, I did about three papers with them, you know, learning research um, in the field. And ever since then, I've been chasing that dream. So needless to say, coming out of Howard University College of Medicine, um, I wanted to look into opportunities to pursue cardiothoracic surgery for which I applied. Um, one of the routes is the integrated cardiothoracic surgery program. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I'm aware of these as a previous program director, I'm aware that these programs are highly competitive. And I think as you and I were talking offline before this, you said there's only something like what, 30, 40 of these programs in the country. Yeah, when I applied back in 2016, I believe there were 22 programs and there were 27 seats in the United States to train in the integrated cardiothoracic surgery program. I was able to successfully match at University of Rochester Medical Center, which is up in upstate New York, um, which I think is an incredible opportunity. I'm excited uh, to now be on my fifth year. Wow. But yes, that is correct. Um, there has been an increase in the number of programs and seats. I think we're still sub 40, mm -hmm. um, so to speak. Um, 
plus or minus. It changes by one or two every year, literally in both directions. Um, but having said that, I think it's a great opportunity just to speak a little bit more specific to the actual um, program in and of itself. For about the first two years, you're doing um, maybe half of the year in general surgery um, programs. The goal is to attain um, an understanding of the cardiothoracic surgery and general surgery principles so that the first two or three years, you would have amassed enough cases um, to understand some of the principles of general surgery. And you can start to build early on your foundation as it pertains to cardiothoracic surgery training so that when you're done, you have six years of continuity and what essentially you're going to be doing for the rest of your life, knowing that you'll never be board certified in general surgery, but you would be for cardiac and thoracic, also known as cardiothoracic surgery. Yeah. The Absite Smackdown podcast. Visit the Smackdown at AbsiteSmackdown.com. Yeah. Well, this is part of why I found it so interesting to have you on the program today. And you're able to speak to this type of training, which the college was describing was the future or at least an option for several uh, important subspecialties. And it seemed to me uh, that this is a great opportunity for you to talk to uh, finishing medical students and even young surgical residents about the differences in this training, why it may be for them. And it sounds like in your case, uh, you really had a love for cardiothoracic. You fell into the research end of it. You had great mentors. Um, for people who are looking at applying to something like this, uh, a combined training thing, what are the pros and cons, if any cons, that you want to describe to uh, these people who, to help them understand whether they're sure it's for them? Well, the first thing I would say is cardiothoracic surgery training still is predominantly by way of general surgery. So general surgery is the gate holder for the most part in training um, the predominance of our workforce. The differences between general surgery and cardiothoracic surgery integrated route, um, I would say in the end goal are few because you're still board certified in doing cardiothoracic surgery. Now, the differences between the two are that you have an earlier exposure and you're a part of the cardiothoracic surgery team as a first year, as a second year, all the way through year six, such that by the time you're on year two or three, you would have done some things that a graduated general surgeon who now gets accepted into cardiothoracic surgery would not have been able to do on day one give you an example, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, ECMO, putting someone on a life-saving device that requires putting these huge cannulas um, in the femoral access, and sometimes other alternative locations. Um, most graduating general surgery residents are not familiar or adept at doing that because that's not a task they typically do um, on the general surgery um, wards. Another um, difference uh, between the two routes I would say is that if you come into cardiothoracic surgery integrated model and your interests are to not pursue cardiothoracic surgery, that would be unfortunate because there aren't many parallel opportunities. You can't just become a PGY-4 
and cardiothoracic and then believe that that's equivalent at being a PGY4 in any other specialty you try to uh, get into. I see. So you're committing yourself early um, with the intentions of getting a foundation that you can build towards, um, but you have to know that it's for you, which is hard um, for some people only because the exposure um, as a medical student may be limited, um, and which is why this platform is a great opportunity for those who are listening um, who may have an interest. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit more about that. I know that you mentioned uh, one of the challenges in uh, having medical students come into a pathway like this is limited exposure uh, to some of the subspecialties. And so let's talk briefly about um, interest and what you think generates interest uh, in cardiothoracic surgery and a program like yours for uh, fourth year, third year students, and uh, you know anybody else in medical school. How do, you, how do you think that looks? And what do you think the future is for bringing people into programs like yours that are very valuable? I think what you're uh, asking is a great question. In fact, um, interesting enough, uh, I will be doing an oral presentation at the American College of Surgeons this October um, on a topic called Factors um, Affecting Interest and Attrition in Cardiothoracic Surgery. It's a survey of North American general surgery and cardiothoracic surgery um, residents and fellows. And our completion of that study, we found that a majority of respondents developed an interest in applying to CT surgery either prior to medical school Hmm. or kind of during those away rotations if they had an interest and they were able to feed that interest. Also, programs that had cardiothoracic surgeons who are able to serve as mentors or role models, you're able to actually see what it is that they're doing be it, you know, just a glance from the window or coming in and, and seeing the operation, yeah. um, that has actually generated some lasting efforts in individuals' minds into pursuing it. So what I would say is not everybody has the opportunity because not everybody has a cardiothoracic surgery program. Mm. That's why platforms such as this is a great opportunity. There's the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association, for which I'm a part of, I'm the current secretary, where there's um, tons of resources available to explain more about our field. And there's a recently um, started Thoracic Surgery Medical Association is for um, medical students. Okay. Well, these are great resources. Um, When we do the editing after, when our our editing team looks at it, I'll try to ask them to include those links at the bottom. So that people can, you know, have an opportunity who may not otherwise uh, to learn about all the resources on the pages. So I think, you know, this is a very valuable training style. I think the the upside of it is, although it requires commitment and there's not really an, an easy ability to switch out of it if you choose to, um, those people who do know they want to do cardiothoracic really have uh, an advantage in terms of training, training length, and those uh, different uh, things. It just seems like it's a great program people who are really interested. And I also appreciate not only you spreading the message on the podcast today, but you even said you're willing to kind of talk through with us uh, a, a case that, you know, we may see and sort of those specific absite related items that come up. So I really appreciate uh, your time doing that today. And- the Absite Smackdown Podcast, bringing you the best for your absite review. And so the the patient that we'll talk about 
is a, a 62-year-old intensive care unit patient, and we see these all the time. Uh, she had a left subclavian central venous catheter placed. She's actually had multiple catheters placed there. And eventually she develops this left-sided effusion. So the team involves you, and thanks so much for coming to see her or having the team come to see her. Uh, she has this left effusion they tapped off. They sent it for triglycerides, and it was this white, milky stuff. That's why they did it when they tapped it off. So they've consulted you because they said, boy, we've never really, we've rarely seen an effusion like this. We think it may be uh, fatty or have chylus. We don't, we don't really know. We sent it for a bunch of stuff. One of the things are triglycerides. Now what do we do? Well, interesting case. The moment I hear a thoracentesis um, in someone who has a white type of substance um, in quality, the first thing you're going to think of is, could this be a chylothorax? That's the first thing. It's once you hear white and it's fluid coming out of the chest, could the two be a chylothorax? And the truth is, although you're able to move forward and say, oh, maybe it is a chylothorax, let me start to treat it as such, it's important to acquire a diagnosis. So you should send the fluid out. And usually I tell individuals, send as much as you can, um, because if you send like five or 10 cc's or something small, is it possible that you can have less sensitivity? Um, so I would send as much as you can out and they would do a couple studies. Um, you mentioned one in particular, which is triglycerides and some other institutions also do chylomicron. Um, but the first thing I would say to myself, chylothorax, you have patients who may have it because it's congenital traumatic, neoplastic, also known as malignancy, but chylothorax nonetheless is something that I would think of. So okay. once you have that milky fluid, send it out and see if you can get 110 about milligrams per deciliter of triglycerides, and, and that would help you get a diagnosis. Well, it turns out among the many labs that returned, sure enough, uh, the team was uh, fortunate enough to send, triglycer uh, send triglycerides, and it did come back uh, very high. Uh, and again, the, the appearance of it was consistent, as you said, with a chylothorax. So in patients like that, uh, again, this isn't something that typical medical intensive care colleagues or surgical intensive care colleagues see very often. So as the consultant, what types of recommendations do you make to help us out uh, for patients like these just by way of initial approach, things we can do for patients with a chylothorax? Absolutely. I'll even take a step back and, and analyze a little further <clears throat> of a scenario that we should still be thinking of having a chylothorax. You may have a patient that has just a high serous chest tube output, and perhaps what they're eating is not provoking what is a chylothorax, but still nonetheless is. There's something that you can do, um, which is by administering dyes that are heavy in fat content, um, one of which is Evans blue dye, which is something you would inject subcutaneously. Okay. And then there's also methane blue that you can add, you know, by enteral um, that will help you provoke um, that classic presentation. Well, I think that's a great uh, point uh, for me as a trauma surgical critical care uh, and also transplant trained surgeon. If you have an elevated chest tube output, may not seem to be responsive to diet. It may not look classically white. But you've highlighted nicely, there are certain tests we can do to determine that, hey, maybe there's a chylothorax underneath this, underlying this anyway. And you've given us a good way to rule it out with dye. So I appreciate it. I would still acquire imaging, though. Okay. 
And uh, what imaging would you recommend in those patients different maybe than ours, the one we've been discussing, but those patients where uh, there is a high chest tube output and we are concerned about chylothorax, how would imaging help you uh, determine in those patients if uh, this is a chylothorax or, or not? Well, for one, I want to know a couple of things. How large is this suffusion? Because you kind of want to understand the refractoriness of this um, output. You've capped it, you've drained it out, and yeah. is it filling up again? You know, yeah. have you ascertained a CT scan at all so you can see kind of where it's filling up? I want to know: is it left? Is it right? Um, the treatment might still be the same. Uh -huh. And for the patient, you know, the difficult case um, patient or someone later on, this may not be part of the pathway, but may have failed a subsequent thoracic duct ligation. So we talk okay. about that. Um, I would consider another imaging, which is okay. lymphangiography, which may be used to localize the leak and plan for a subsequent um, invasive operation. Well, great. So back to the patient who had their chest tapped off and the one that you're being our consultant for, thank you so much. Um, again, triglycerides positive uh, was a classic appearance of a chylothorax. Um, would you, you would also, it sounds like, recommend CT imaging for that patient, especially if the cause isn't known. Any other medical, uh, more medical interventions that we should be doing with our chylothorax patients before we start to decide whether they will or won't need operative intervention? Absolutely. So what I would say is first and foremost, it's okay if you're not moving forward with a CT scan, a uh, chest x-ray may be suffice with that diagnosis that we found. Okay. The management I would say would be medical first for me and most patients. I'm not choosing an invasive procedure because you would uh, subject them to the risk of doing so. So first of all, I would have a drain in place. So tube thoracostomy, leave okay. a tube so that you can continue to drain it. Okay. My anticipation is when the lung is fully expanded and you have complete coaptation of the lung to the actual pleural wall itself, um, uh -huh. perhaps less fluid um, will want to come out. Then you want to have this patient in PO, so nothing by mouth, and you want to be ready to take care of their nutrition. For most patients, you're giving them total parental nutrition. Okay. Or if you could ascertain the type of diet that you're able to get, um, then something that's a medium chain um, diet. Okay. You want to try your best to reduce their cow flow. So for some institutions, um, octreotide, also known as somatostatin, um, is something that is considered. It's an adjunct. Um, the benefit according to some, is that it's unproven, um, but it's known to decrease gastrointestinal secretions um, and absorption, and in turn, hopefully, um, you're decreasing the lymph production. Okay. There are other things that can be done as well um, if things are refractory, but for now, I would say that that would be kind of the standard medical management you're doing in the beginning. Okay, so we really appreciate uh, your input. You've recommended tube thoracostomy for drainage, NPO uh, with TPN and uh, perhaps a medium chain triglyceride diet, uh, reducing the chyle flow with octreotide, which may work. Um, it's really much appreciated. And um, we try all those things, mm -hmm. but unfortunately in this case, you know, the chylothorax doesn't seem to resolve. They seem to continue draining. And now uh, the resident staff and the surgical critical care attending who you're helping, they wonder to themselves, how much Kyle, despite doing all these medical interventions, 
how much Kyle is too much and how long do we wait or not wait before we decide on whether they need a surgical intervention? Okay. Well, you know, I would first start by saying the jury's out. Now, there are many institutions that will agree on some of the principles I'm outlining. There are other institutions that may have different um, trigger numbers. If you have a patient who's having drainage that's greater than a liter a day. The Absite Smackdown podcast is based on the best-selling review book, Absite Smackdown. The only Absite review with an entire video review course included. Visit AbsiteSmackdown.com and pick it up today. They're losing quality um, factors in that effusion that may be necessary for their nutrition. So losing greater than one liter is problematic. If you have the patient, let's say it's not losing, you know, a liter, something a little bit less, but this is going on, you know, for, you know, getting close to two weeks. I'm concerned because it's proving that this uh, effusion is refractory to the current medical treatments that are being given at the time. So that person should be considered for what's called a surgical thoracic duct ligation. So I think one of the important things you've highlighted is uh, the amount of output and the ongoing nature of output that's concerning to you. And in this patient, it does get to uh, two weeks. The drainage has never really exceeded a liter a day, but it's really borderline and it's just continued on. Uh, like you said, with your imaging, there's no sign of a malignancy underneath. And uh, the, the team is really uh, concerned just as you are. The patient does seem to be a reasonable surgical candidate in terms of uh, cardiovascular risk stratification and other medical comorbidities. So in a patient like that who seems to be a surgical candidate, who meets your criteria for drainage, what type of procedure uh, do you recommend in general? And I'll also share, which I did not upfront, this is a left-sided effusion, same side as the previous central venous catheter placement, left-sided effusion. Yeah. So what I would say is um, a thoracic duct ligation or tributary clipping is a common procedure that is to be done probably outside the scope of our discussion. I won't go in too much great details, um, but this is essentially a procedure that's done thoracoscopically. So using some an endoscope, for instance, or via thoracotomy. So an incision into the chest um, and finding some areas that are proximal to the pathway of this um, likely thoracic duct that's causing this effusion. Um, there are some other um, adjuncts that can be done as well. The additions of sealant or fibrin glue as a secondary measure um, following the thoracic duct ligation or clipping. Um, another um, opportunity to be more specific is a mass thoracic duct ligation. This is typically performed, again, could be open or thoracoscopically in the right chest for VATS, which is video-assisted thoracoscopic surgery. You're looking at the intercostal space somewhere seven or eight, um, even eight or nine, and you're finding an opportunity to see if you can proximally go across that thoracic duct that we know um, travels up towards the chest, crosses over from around fourth or fifth, and then ascends upwards. If you can kind of ligate it proximally, then perhaps you'll decrease substantially the collection of uh, effusion that is essentially happening because of this um, 
this chylothorax. The anatomy is, is very important. And I would probably say for the thoracic duct, unfortunately, most people do not read the textbooks. There are um, a lot of variations that may be true for certain patients as it pertains to their particular anatomy. Um, and, and that, unfortunately, is just the truth that we've experienced. Well, I really appreciate your time and help with this patient and your expertise. I think you've highlighted nicely a lot of the relevant absite-related facts that come up about uh, chylothorax and, and what it does and what we can do uh, as the uh, setup people uh, for you as the subspecialist when you have to decide whether or not you're going to operate on these people. So really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for going through the scenario with us. And as we close out, any final words for young colleagues who are exploring uh, cardiothoracic surgical residency, it often gets called, uh, and a training program like yours? Any pieces of advice or anything to share uh, with those people who are up and coming and interested in uh, entering the field via a, a program like the one you've done? Well, cardiothoracic surgery is looking for you. We're trying to attract the best and the brightest. The pathways are several. The opportunities are great. Um, the pathways that exist so far are the integrated route, um, but we also have two additional pathways, one of which is the, is the path less traveled. Most people don't know about. Um, the more popular one, as I mentioned earlier, is by way of general surgery and then doing a two to three year thoracic surgery fellowship. And then the third route that I was mentioning is, believe it or not, you can actually do a vascular surgery integrated residency, a five-year program followed by a two to three year cardiothoracic surgery program that has been approved for many years. Not a lot of people do it, but the skill set, you know, to have a vascular surgery trained um, fellowship and to follow that with cardiothoracic, you are the expert of every vessel across that body, outside of the brain, of course. <laughs> well, well said. And Dr. Plutton Lewis, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. And as Jessica would say, if she were here and not on vacation, uh, to all the listeners out there, remember, hashtag Absite Smackdown. Thanks for listening to the Absite Smackdown podcast. Visit us at AbsightSmackdown.com for more great Absite facts.